Hello, and thank you for joining When the Picture Isn't Perfect podcast. Life never is perfect, but it can be beautiful in every situation. God can take our challenges and turn them into a beautiful picture. So when our picture isn't perfect, let's focus on the one who is. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Megan. Our lives are not perfect. Things go wrong. Bad things happen. But with God's help, we are making our masterpieces. Hello! Welcome for joining us once again on the When the Picture Isn't Perfect podcast. We um, are happy to say that both me and Caitlin are here today and we are joined by the most wonderful mother-in-law in the world, in my opinion. <laughs> The wonderful Tish Clark. Um, would you mind introducing yourself for those who might not know you? Well, I have the most wonderful husband in the world, BJ Clark, that a lot of you probably do know, if you don't know me. Um, and she is married to my baby, Michael. Uh, BJ and I have been married 40 years. He's the Memphis School of Preaching director. I've been a teacher now for 21 years in public schools and support him in his endeavors in the church. So. Awesome. And um, so you're with us because we are going to be talking about, um, we talked about a chronic illness with Courtney Ruiz two weeks ago. And um, your situation is a little different because you were diagnosed um, suddenly with cancer. And now you are cancer free. Yes. But it was a long, hard journey. Do you mind kind of telling us about um, what kind of cancer you had? I was diagnosed with melanoma stage one cancer in a mole on my left arm. Mm, probably three and a half, four years ago. It was before COVID. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> and then... I went through all the three-month checks and x-rays and blood work and all that for two years, and nothing else showed up. Um, there was a spot removed, and it was pre-cancer, pre-melanoma, that spot. And then maybe, oh, six months later, that was in July. And around January, I was, I replaced a teacher at school, and I had taught English and social studies for nearly 20 years. And so I was put back in to English full time. And suddenly in January, I'm starting to struggle with English concepts and um, I'm not understanding what, what we're teaching in sixth grade. And so I was thought, well, this must be stress from, from the COVID years. Cause it was very stressful to teach during COVID and after COVID and I'm not young. So that's what I thought it was. And BJ thought I had um, PTSD for COVID. I don't really know where he came up with that, but he just, thought that's what it was and I needed a lot of rest. So, so I was struggling with that, you know, they would just quickly, we wouldn't have a meeting and, you know, we're going to do theme with this. And I thought, what is theme? Uh, you know, I'd have to constantly look up stuff and it was starting to cause some mental anguish, worrying about all of that. That was about January on. And then by May, um, I was very, very tired all the time, tired. Um, by the end of the day, I would be dragging my right side um, but I knew I hadn't had a stroke. I, it was, you know, I slept all the time during the summer, even, even during the day when bright light and noise is going on. And that was, I was never able to do that before, but I could sleep at the drop of a hat. Um, I couldn't remember things that I had done that morning, you know, what, what day it was during the summer. I, I didn't remember vacation times with, with, uh, Michael and Megan and the family and Branson, unless they brought up events that we did and then it started coming back. So that stuff was fading. So by summertime, by, I'd say by the end of the summer, um, I was really struggling at that point. And we started going to the doctors at the end of July, drawing blood and talking to various people and nothing was coming up on the blood work. Um, so BJ called a good friend in South Carolina, a doctor, and he he said, well, if this was your wife, what would you do? And he said, I'd get her to a neurologist. So sweet Megan <laughs> gave us the name of a trusted neurologist that she had encountered at the hospital. And 
I'd already started school at that point in August and I couldn't hardly walk. I couldn't, I wasn't balanced. I couldn't, I couldn't write on the whiteboard. I sat in my classroom and would cry. I couldn't even set it up. I couldn't, it was all overwhelming to me. It's like I knew what stuff was, but I didn't know what to do with it. So then the kids come and after three days, um, it was obvious (laughs) that I was struggling big time. So they started putting other teachers in the classroom with me because um, they knew I was seeing doctors. And so we get to the neurologist, and he said, let's do an MRI. And the MRI came back a few days after the first visit, and there's an egg on my brain <laughs> on the top of my head. And my husband, BJ, he was floored. He's thinking, oh, no, my wife, my wife has a brain tumor. I'm thinking, oh, Hallelujah. (laughs) I have a brain tumor because I had convinced myself I had dementia and I didn't think that was really very fair. It was like overnight. I couldn't really communicate very well. I could talk with people and stuff, but I couldn't communicate very well with people and always be clear about stuff. And I was confused a lot. Um, And so I had convinced myself I had early onset dementia. And at this point it was too late to do anything about it. So when they showed us the tumor, I never, I never cried. I was never, I never cried about having cancer or was upset by it. You know, it was just, okay, what's the next step? And we just went from there. So. Yeah. And from the family outside looking in, it did seem like early on said dementia or something like that. Conversations. There were just things you said that didn't make sense. And I remember the the when it the first thing that was like a real red flag was when you looked at your granddaughter. Yeah, <laughs> who had just turned a year old, and you said she cr- was crying. And when you picked her up, she kept crying, and you were having a hard time holding her. And I think it made her uncomfortable because you like it's like your your hands couldn't hold things like mm-hmm. they they. Like, it just didn't work the same. And so she was uncomfortable. She was crying. And you, what you said to her, it just broke my heart. You were like, oh, I know you don't, you don't really know me. <laughs> You've never been around me before, but I'm your grandmother. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, I was I like, I remember looking at BJ and he looked at me and we were both like, she joking? Like, but you were mm-hmm. dead serious. I was. Because <laughs> I didn't remember the times I'd been with her. <laughs> yeah, and that's what's so sad. Thankfully, those memories mm-hmm. came back. Yeah, well, a lot, of, most of them did, but there's, there's still a lot of hazy, haziness mm-hmm. in those that year. Yeah, but man, that that was scary. But um, yes, a brain tumor didn't answer a lot of questions mm-hmm. that we had. So during all of that, um, with especially with the the fear of the unknown as it relates to like my memory is going everything like that um how did you rely on god during that time um or did your faith struggle any or did it grow it really well especially in the i think i was blessed because where my tumor was sitting the neurosurgeon said it was on my processing center so my brain wasn't really processed. That's why a lot of stuff I said didn't make sense, and I, I couldn't, the, the messages from my brain to my body parts weren't were going that direction. So that's why I couldn't walk, I couldn't write, and stuff like that. Um, but the fact that it was on my processing center, it never, I didn't process, oh, he's going to cut my scalp open <laughs> and expose my brain. None of that really hit me, you know. Um, my attitude was just, okay, well, what do we do now? You know, and um, I read a book when I was in high school, and it, it's a lot of uh, positive thinking when you're when you face illness and stuff, that the body, God has created the body in such a way that a lot of your positive thoughts can help heal, whereas if you get depressed and live in the negativity of everything, then that's worse for, for dealing with and all of the statistics and all that of people that survived illnesses and that from 
more of a mental attitude, the way that they approached it. So I've never been one to approach an illness like, oh, I'm going to die now. <laughs> um, I didn't look, I didn't look up at the illness at all on the internet. Frankly, I couldn't have at that moment in time, but I never did. B BJ, from the moment I was diagnosed with stage one melanoma, started looking at melanoma because he wanted to know all the questions and, and everything, you know. Um, but I never did. It was just, uh, I guess I always knew God was there and that he was never going to leave me. So I never questioned it. It was more of a mindset of I'm ready to meet God. Do I want to go and be in heaven with God right now? Not really, not with family, um, but but I'm ready if something happens. So so I never had that um, lack of faith or anything. And But I say that tongue-in-cheek because the tumor, I think, honestly, sitting where it was sitting helped me to not have to question all that stuff in the beginning, you know. Because it was already, like, you already had made up your mind about yeah. that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So did you remember you couldn't process new things or things that were happening to you? But did you think about that book in that time that you had? Did you remember it from no, high school? No, not then. I think um, BJ was asking me after the surgeries and stuff and when it was over, you know, he was asking me, I don't, why are you so positive? And I remembered, I said, it was just like a feeling. It's something, I want to say his name is Norman Cousins. And I looked up the book and I told BJ, I said, I don't remember if this was required reading in a high school class or not, but I remember reading it. And it's just a, I don't read self-help books. It's not, so that was like an unusual thing that I read that. And it was just a mindset that made sense to me. And so, and I grew up in a family that wasn't uh, the most peaceful or functioning family. Um, parents left the faith pretty quickly after they were baptized. So I think I was searching for the truth and, and faith and a foundation to stand on. And once I found it, I'm not going to let that go, you know. So so it, it just – but I don't want to sound like um, – I'm some great Christian because I didn't cry over cancer or that I always had a positive outlook. That's why when the tumor was sitting on my processing center, I think that was a help of it wasn't allowing me to process the, the you know, from point A to point B, what, mm -hmm. what might happen. Once the tumor was removed and the swelling went down after about a week, then my brain was fully functioning again for the most part. So, um, and then that, I think the normal personality I have takes, takes over, you know? Yeah. But before that, there was no fear because I wasn't processing fear, you know, mm -hmm. with it. So. Yeah. It was good to have you back. Yeah. After, <laughs> after that two working together. Because it, yeah, your, your personality and everything was completely different. But, um, back to you talking about your faith, um, are there any scriptures that you can share that helped you or if you weren't processing at the time helped um, your family get through this battle? Well, I asked BJ, I'll, I'll tell you my favorite um, scripture is John 17, the chapter, just because the verse that talks about, um, and he prayed for those that were to come mm -hmm. that, and I mean, I know Realistically, he came and died for me on the cross. But the thought that he literally prayed at that moment down the corridors of time and, and had me in consideration, that's always meant a lot to me. But then through the years, um, dealing with the different stresses that have come in our marriage with, um, well, all, all different kinds of things, you know, parents that divorced and wayward people and you know all of the stresses that come psalm 46 is probably truly my favorite chapter because when you read psalm 46 it's like it it really doesn't matter what happens the whole world could evaporate but god's in control no matter what you know when you read it god's our refuge and strength the very present help in trouble therefore will we not fear though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea 
though the waters there are roaring be trod, and it goes on and on and on. God is in control. And I think that became um, a mainstay for me that no matter what difficulties I was having after surgeries and all of that, this too shall pass. God is in control. And even if, even if it all ended, God was in control. Now, BJ told me his favorite verse that he went through over and over and over, because, you know, it's really harder for the spouse to go through uh, their loved one having a, uh, a life-threatening sickness because they can't do anything about it. So they can't take it, especially a man. He can't take the pain away. He can't go through walk through it for you. So he said his verse that he went to over and over was Psalm 56, three, what time I am afraid I will trust in thee because he said, um, he just had to keep giving it all over to God and trust that God, God had it all in his hands. And even when he was scared, God, I will trust in thee. That's what he kept hearing in his head over and over this verse and then praying to God to trust and that's um those are just the two the two main verses those are good yeah. ones so um if we have a loved one that's facing the battle of the unknown how how would you um recommend that we support them um you know the biggest thing I, that i can think of is if if your loved one, well, first of all, if it's a member of your family, obviously the families that you two come from, you're going to be right there supporting them. But but I have thought over and over so many times of the people like the widow at church who gets diagnosed with cancer or any kind of, you know, any kind of life-threatening or physically altering serious illness that requires continuous doctor's appointments and a therapy situation and all that. Well, what if she doesn't have the family around her that can take her. Um, our life truly stopped and BJ stopped everything. And we were at doctor's offices. It seemed like three and four times a week for weeks on end and into months. And he was there. He never missed. He missed one treatment at the cancer clinic and he cried. He was with me every step of the way. And that made me think how many people outside of the church even don't have that support with divorce and all of that. And so I think if you ever see anybody that's going through something like that, don't assume that they have somebody, even not necessarily even a caregiver that lives with them, but someone to drive them. Because I could not have physically driven home from the treatments, especially the first four or five. I, I could not hardly get to the car. I was so drained. So I think about those people, especially when you're in the cancer clinic and you see the people all by themselves, and there are slews, or is that the right word? There are dozens of people by themselves, single, and I'm thinking, who's there for them? So so I think your time, be, be there for them. You know, that's the, that's the biggest thing to me. Right. That's beautiful mm-hmm. because um, you don't always think, you tr- you think of your loved ones getting it, but you don't always think, Hey, I need to look out for the people who are, who don't have um, children helping them, a spouse helping them, or anything like that. Because um, I know that's not necessarily something that I thought of to like look out for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I feel like when, like Megan, you and I have like caregiving jobs. Sometimes, even though we're like super empathetic and would probably sit there and cry in the pew for someone. It's not like off off of work to think about like people who aren't in our family immediately because we just like have to shut it down mm-hmm. for the day so that we can be for our family. So it's better to to have that mindset, especially with our family in Christ, like how much more so to be there for them. That's true. And that's a hard thing when you're like a nurse or in a caregiving role because you can really burn out from helping people. <laughs> And uh, so it takes a lot of um, extra motivation, I, I guess. I don't know. To It takes a little extra. Kind of awareness because uh, yeah, sometimes awareness. we just kind of put blinders on when we 
caregiver. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, hey, I left work. I'm not a nurse right now. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I remember you say that, mm-hmm. but your your nature is to care. And I'm sure you remember when I was stuck in the bathtub at home before mm-hmm. the surgery and couldn't get out. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't let BJ help me out because I was afraid I would rupture a disc in his back. And so we, <laughs> Megan got off work and she came over and used her skills that she'd learned to get me out of the bathtub with a sheet. But um, it was an immediate response and, and very sweet natured and that. So I know y'all think you probably would be done, but you're not. You're really not. <laughs> It just naturally comes from both of you. Thank you. Yeah. But I I think I would need to, like, be aware so I could jump in if someone doesn't ask me. Right. If someone asks me yeah. if there's something going on. Like, there have been emergencies um, in the middle of worship. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember doing CPR on a man in the middle of worship one day. Things like that. Or um, someone falling out or whatever. Yeah, you, nurses, like, we just jump to action because that's that's just in mm-hmm. us but i think it takes a little bit more to like what about the people that aren't asking mm. about the people that aren't like they're too afraid to say hey i need help right looking out for that kind of mm-hmm. thing because we're always like we're always like ready for like the emergency we sometimes don't process smaller to the hey like this person needs someone to just sit with them and and give them time mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Very profound, Miss Tish. Very profound. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's simple. It's just simple. Not something I would have even thought of before, you know? Just, you see things. You see things. And when, and I have, I am so blessed. I cannot, I cannot tell you how blessed I am. And so, with that thought, it makes me think of all the people that aren't, you mm-hmm. know? And you, and you see things differently. Yeah. And we do see that, um, in the hospital and stuff, we I see, I'm sure you do too, Caitlin, a lot of the patients that come in um, that don't have family with them, mm-hmm. who don't have a support system. Nobody's calling to check on them. They're just there. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. Um, is there any struggle that you go through now on a day-to-day basis that people may not realize that you face? Um, and then... I mean, this is probably not even connected, but I just thought, like, in what ways has abruptly facing mortality changed your perspective or maybe solidified your faith? Um, this, well, the struggles that I go through more are, uh, I am going to be 61, so you don't really know what's from, I'm getting old, <laughs> and what was from treatments and stuff. And I'm blessed because I didn't have chemotherapy, so you know, this extreme nausea and weight loss and debilitation that goes through chemo, that is not the immunotherapies that are hitting the scene. And the only thing that's really effective with melanoma right now and such a God-given blessing. So I didn't go through any of that. Um, I guess I struggle with the weird things. Like it's made me think I had a lymph, I don't know the right word for it, lymph dissection, lymph node dissection. Um, lymph node removal? Yeah, where they went in, and and, and I imagine most women with breast cancer have that done. Mm-hmm. Um, and mine was, I think they called it stage a stage two or category two or something. It's like 14 to 16 lymph nodes are removed. Um, well, my whole armpit is numb. I can't feel it at all. That's a very strange feeling. <laughs> um, because of the possibility of lymphedema, I can't shave under that armpit. So... As a woman, you know, it's like, oh, great. So I'm trying to use a electric shaver, and those don't work, okay? So that's just an odd, and when I put deodorant on, I can't remember, did I put it on because I can't feel it, you know? So those are not bad things. I'm not saying it's like, oh, that's overwhelming, horrible. It's stuff you don't expect, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the actual lymph node dissection was worse than the brain surgery. Mm-hmm. The recovery from it for me was was much worse than the recovery from brain surgery. Um, I, I got an infection. I got the drain tubes were yeah, drain blocked tubes three times, and mm-hmm. it was it was just a mess. Um, I was allergic to the tape, so that it was that was a very hard ordeal. Um, and I think 
how many women do I hear of that I know that are friends diagnosed with breast cancer, obviously go through that surgery, and I never once thought about what they go through. You know, to me, it's made me aware of what people, you hear that word, and I think sometimes cancer, oh no, it's like a dirty word. You don't want to become intimate with it, you know? And so when it when it is dropped into your life, you know, I remember the first time I had to check on the doctor's office, and I think I was at the dentist or and I was filling out a paperwork oh oh yes I had cancer <laughs> mm-hmm. you know check that it was a weird feeling um but it's made I guess it's made me more in tune to other people and what they go through with it that that's just not a word that I want to throw out of my head as soon as I hear it it's made me more aware of beyond the main where the main site is other stuff that they went through you know so that that's a that's a part that I struggle with um in a mild way throughout the time. I do have um, short-term memory loss. Uh, if I write a lesson plan today, I won't remember what it is tomorrow unless I really work at it and think about it. So I've learned to carry my notes with me. Um, that my, my coworkers at school, when we're, when we're talking, it, it's, it's almost like my brain is stuttering and it's coming to me and, and they all laugh and we just wait a minute till till she can come out with it and then I come you know and so it's like a it's like I'm on pause for a minute with my brain and since it's been a year and a half since surgery I don't think that's really going to get that much better I call it like disjointed thinking so would you mind describing there's a lot of different stages um when it comes to the cancer you had your before your diagnosis after your diagnosis before surgery you had after surgery you had other procedures that you went through. Do you mind um, describing those different battles and how God was with you through each? Well, um, you have to say perhaps providence, (laughs) but it seems like providentially we started with a neurologist, which was amazing. And he had on his cell phone, the text number to the most uh, premier neurosurgeon in the city. We are finding out from multiple places that he is top-notch brain surgeon in the city. So he had him on his cell phone, like immediate text. I've got the doctor for you and texted him. Immediate conference with a neurosurgeon who had Dr. Portnoy, the premier melanoma special cancer, cancer doctor, on his cell phone. They like were all friends. And mm-hmm. that seemed very providential to us that we had the best, you know, we've heard so many horror stories of we went someplace and we didn't like those doctors and they didn't treat us well or anything like that. So I have to say from the very beginning, um, we just had the best care. I mean, the neurologist called me personally on my phone to make sure when he saw the pathology report that I had an oncologist and then the neurosurgeon hugged me. (laughs) And, you know, they, you always hear the neurosurgeons, you know, they're so special. They think they're next to God because they can work on brains. That's not what we experienced. So from the medical community, the stages moved, yes, very quickly. I mean, you don't, they don't wait around, especially when you're diagnosed stage four. They don't wait around. But everyone I encountered, from the receptionist to the nurses to the volunteers to the phlebotomists, is that what they're mm-hmm. called, to you know, the immunotherapy nurses, all of them, it's like they become your family. So from the medical world, those stages moved extremely fast, but with a lot of love and care, they didn't treat me like a number at all. Um, So it wasn't, it was kind of a whirlwind, but I could see so many things, like just as soon as the tumor was gone, everything was so much clearer in my thinking. So that was a positive thing. And then it wasn't really um, when they said you have to have the Gamini procedure, and that's described kind of like Frankenstein procedure. Um, I thought, well, if I don't have it, the tumor is going to grow back. So, okay, let's just go do it. it it's not going to last long. It's half a day. It's over with, and we're done, you know. Um you just you just go through the stages because you have to go through the stages if you want mm-hmm. to beat cancer. But the people that worked through us with that were amazing. So that that wasn't hard 
it wasn't hard to go through the stages, honestly. Um, and then, uh, the feeling that God was with us through everything I feel is providential with the, with the medical care that we received. And I have to say, um, the Higginbotham's Steve Higginbotham, who went through this, I think his melanoma diagnosis was two years before mine. They were instrumental in providing so much information to us so that it was like visual pictures explaining what the immunotherapy would do. Um, that the melanoma cell has like an arm on it to block the cancer treatments from coming in. And that's why melanoma until the last 10 years with immunotherapies was not being uh, treated because radiation and chemotherapy didn't kill it. So it was, uh, I found out recently a, a six to eight month prognosis with a brain tumor. So they explained to us, well, but the immunotherapy comes in and teaches your T cells to knock the arm off and then the, the medicine can get into the cell and kill it. That's a vivid picture. You know, all of these things make it easier to go and sit through treatment after treatment. Um, we laughed about there's soldiers coming into my body, <laughs> key true to soldiers coming in and fighting. And it became kind of a fun thing <laughs> to go through. So as far as the medical world, um, I just feel part of a very wonderful community of very caring people. And so I'm proud. I'm proud to know that my daughter-in-law is part of that, you know, and, and other people, Caitlin. So that part, um, my husband, uh, is, he just stopped everything, every aspect of his life and took care of me. Um, and I mean, he, he's never, uh, cooked before really, did many of the dishes or washed many clothes. I was a stay at home mom for six years. So why should I train him how to do all that stuff? You know? And then when I did go to work, it was just a routine that we had established. Um, and he was the financier person. <laughs> so he took care of all of that and I took care of the house. So when I had cancer with the brain tumor, especially, he had to learn how to do all of that. And because you physically couldn't. No, no, I couldn't. Your brain couldn't tell no. your body how to wash a dish. No. Uh -uh. Or how to heat up mm -mm. spaghetti in the microwave. That's right. It was necessary. <laughs> You'll have to ask about that later. But spaghetti is necessary. <laughs> um, but he he did think, like, he he became a, a magician in the microwave and went down the freezer section and found all this stuff in the grilled cheese out of the freezer. So he, he grew a lot, you know, as a husband and he never complained, never, he was exhausted. I know, but he never complained. Um, we developed because he's on the road so much that we never really had this prayer life at night because he was on the road. We talked to each other during the day and then I didn't talk to him at night because he was usually holding a gospel meeting somewhere and with people and I would just go on to bed, but cancer taught us that life can be over in a minute and so every night and and he had to walk me because I couldn't walk by myself until after the tumor was removed so he he walked me down the hall and helped me get undressed and helped me get in bed and sat with me and said a prayer every night and that has been a routine now since since that time and even when he's out of town now he says a prayer with me um and sometimes we're both driving because he knows I'm going to be asleep by 830 at night. And so if he'll be preaching, so he'll say, don't close your eyes. But, but we, and that is a blessing that came from that, you know, that we as, as loving and fantastic as our marriage is, we didn't have that. And so we have that now. So, so that is, um, my immediate family stepped in immediately and, and took over so many things with, bringing food and cooking and just taking care of different things for us. All, I mean, I, I wasn't hurting at all for that. Um, the local church family was right there. The school, the, the student wives, they were cooking. Um, the national church family, I had so many. I have a Rubbermaid box that is about two feet wide, two feet deep kind of deal, full of cards that I want to put in a scrapbook one day from people I don't even know a lot of them. And some people sent cards every week, the same people. I will never forget 
I, I don't want to call out certain names because I don't want to hurt people that, but there are, there are some people that sent me cards two and three times a week with a paragraph detailed, sincere, specific message to me. And I got it and stamps aren't cheap, you know, and those are very special to me. Um, the prayers that went up and the, the gifts, the gifts were coming in the mail. Uh, BJ, <laughs> when he went and held a gospel meeting, like the first gospel meeting, he went without me and he was able to go. Um, he brought back this box that was like three feet by three feet. And I think they called it a sunshine box and it was full of gifts for me. <laughs> and he said, I'm the one held gospel meeting <laughs> and you get the gifts. So those are the things that, yeah, there's stages you go through, but I think that's the benefit of being in the church. I don't know how people do this without the church, you know, and through the church, I was blessed to have a godly husband and a godly family, you know, so you're surrounded by all of that. So, um, I think that's, that's what helped me get through it. And you see God in each person, each, each one, even, even the ones at the cancer clinic who aren't Christians, you still see God in their faces because of their, they're emulating the love and compassion of God. So, so you, you feel surrounded by him and you can't you can't be doesn't allow you to forget that fact you know that, that he's there all the time with you that's beautiful mm-hmm. so um i know that you were talking a little bit about um some of the struggles that you had while you were um getting diagnosed but since then um are there any day-to-day struggles that you face? Um, well, my thyroid died right away and the, uh, my cancer chemo, cancer doctor, he said, oh, we don't say died here in the West cancer clinic. <laughs> so he said, we did kill your thyroid, but we don't say that word in the clinic. So we'll just say that it doesn't work anymore, but how many millions of people take thyroid medication, you know? Mm. So that's not a big deal. Um, my hair's thinner than it used to be from the surgery and the gamma knife procedure, but I have hair. <laughs> So there are some people that are bald, you know, so I have hair, so that's okay. And if anyone that doesn't know me looks at me and goes, oh, her hair is so thin. I don't really care. <laughs> I have hair. So there's that. Um, I have to admit the vanity of a female. There are times that I struggle with uh, trying to do my hair and it doesn't want to cooperate. And I, I think of pictures when I was younger and what it looked like better. But don't we all, you all aren't there yet because you're young. But oh, you're no, going to be there. elderly, elderly one day, and you're going to remember the beauty you had when you were young, you know. But that those are, like I said, those are unique things. Those are constants. Um, I have muscle and joint pain that can come about from the Keytruda, but it can also come from old age. So who knows? Um, I do have, uh, like, short-term memory loss kind of problems where um, I can't remember what I did the day before as far as... I wrote a lesson plan of what I'm going to do next week and I can't remember what it was. So if the principal is saying, okay, now what are you doing in your classroom? Uh, It would hit me almost like a confrontation because my brain has like a block in it and I couldn't answer. Um, So I learned to carry my lesson plan book with me all the time so that if someone said, Hey, how are you doing this? And what are you doing? And all, you know, it's not that they were trying to attack me, but I took it as an attack because I couldn't remember and then I'm struggling with, but I just, I just wrote this. Sometimes it would have been like, I just typed this up an hour ago and I can't remember anything I typed up. And so that, that is a very frustrating thing to live with. And I think about elderly people that, that are losing their memories and stuff. And I, I can understand why they get frustrated. We, we look at it and go, it's no big deal that you forgot where so-and-so was. It is a big deal to them because it's kind of scary mm-hmm. to think, mm-hmm. but I, just wrote this or I just set this somewhere. Um, so, so the short term memory, I mean, it's been a year and a half, so I think that's probably going to be a constant. So I guess I'm prepared for it as I get dementia. I don't know. (laughs) Um, but there's that, um, lymph node challenges. I had the dissection of the lymph nodes and, I think they call it a category two. I think it's like 12 to 16 lymph nodes get taken out. When you have that, you you have to be careful to not get lymphedema. And so they talk about cuts on your 
skin or even like a hangnail on your fingers and all that can cause lymphedema. And once you get lymphedema, it's my understanding, it doesn't go away very easily. So I don't shave under my arm. And as a female, that's really upsetting (laughs) and annoying, you know. (laughs) So I try to use an electric razor and that doesn't work very well. So I'm thinking, great. This arm has more hair under it. And it's just very frustrating with that. I can't feel um, under my arm at all. And that has been a year and a half. So I don't think that's coming back either. So I can't remember sometimes that I put deodorant on. You know, I can't, I can't feel it. Um, it's, it's a very strange sensation. And so it's caused me to think about all these people with breast cancer, mostly women, but even men who go through that lymph node surgery and really what they're dealing with for the rest of their life. You know, it mm-hmm. makes you just makes you more aware of stuff. Um, the, uh, the, the, the surgery that I had to remove the lymph nodes was, was probably the hardest thing I went through. That was about four weeks of misery with blocked drainage tubes, infection. I was allergic to the tape that was like three inch, but, or four inch square, um, the adhesive was eating my skin. I, it was, it was worse than the brain tumor. Um, BJ was beside himself. He was having to clean it every day and it, he just, he knew it was causing me so much pain and it was tearing him up. So it, it's made me, this has made me aware of what other people go through, you know, and it's, um, it's minor. What I went through is minor compared to what so many people go through with cancer from chemo and stuff. I didn't have any of that serious stuff. And, and some people have all of these surgeries month after month after month. And, and I haven't faced that. So I feel blessed with that. So I don't really consider the struggles that I have after all of this to be horrible. Um, or depressing or anything. In fact, I think a lot of what I'm feeling is probably because I'm going to be 61, you know, and these things come, you get old, these things happen. So that's, it's okay. So in what way did facing your mortality so abruptly, like change your perspective on life? I think everything gets sweeter. Um, you can't say, I, we talked, we were, I couldn't say anything completely in full sentences and make a lot of sense, but I could say, I love you. And I told PJ, I just, I love you like dozens and dozens of times. It just becomes sweeter to you that you want the people that you love to know that you love them. Um, my grandchildren became more precious to me to hold them and to tell them that I love them. Um, It became a mission. I've always loved the holidays, but after being diagnosed with cancer, it became a mission to make the holidays very special for my grandkids more than anything. So um, if I was going to die through the treatments, they would have fun memories, you know, of not just Christmas, because that's always a big deal, but all the little holidays and that they would be fun. And it, it's fun for me too. So everything just became like more colorful and brighter and vivid because life is precious and, and you take it for granted. And so I think that's what, what you see. Um, life truly is precious. That's good. Mm-hmm. It's hard to keep that in perspective. Yeah. And, and I remember as a young mother, I remember it's like you wish your life away. You know, you're you're exhausted. You can't sleep through the night because your child's not sleeping through the night. Um, you've got all of this to do at home. And and before you know it, though, they're grown. And so I think that's when, when you're faced with a life-altering situation, whatever it is, a car accident or whatever, it's like these things that you stress over so much before, suddenly they don't matter. You know, and so, so everything is in more perspective and life is more beautiful, you know. Mm-hmm. That's good. And I wish it would be easier to like remember that and learn that without having to go through 
cancer. <laughs> yeah, I know? understand that because I know I was right where you are. I, I remember. Mm -hmm. I really do. So if I did have a loved one diagnosed, but if um, people listening um, or th they themselves, if I myself um, get, has, gets diagnosed with cancer or anything else, any other disease, just suddenly, um, how, how would the caregiver or the support, how would we support them? How do we... What are some things that they might need that we wouldn't just think of? Well, the thing that was overwhelming to me when you sit at the at the clinic and you're waiting, and, and I think they told me they had 160 beds at the clinic for immunotherapy and chemo treatments, and that was mind-boggling, and that many times all 160 are full. I can't tell you how many times I sat. I think there's 10 or 12 beds in each little room that we're in. And there weren't anybody sitting with the other patients. Is that the correct grammar? No one <laughs> was sitting with the other patients. I mean, there might be a family member or two here and there, but some, and sometimes they were like, looked like they were 80 years old and they were by themselves. And so it's made me aware that um, I am so blessed because I had such a good support system, but not everybody does. And what about that widow in the church who gets diagnosed and her family lives far away? and her husband's not there, or her husband's not able to do it for, you know, the support system that we need to be aware and, and be willing, and also maybe broach the subject with the person, and when they turn you down, keep pushing. You know, you're a sister, and you want to support, and you want to be there with them, because it's it's difficult to get through, especially, I would imagine if you have chemo, with the nausea and all of that, but beyond that, just driving to the to the doctor. You you know, you I wasn't allowed to drive for twelve weeks. So who would get me there? I was going to three and four doctors' appointments a week if BJ wasn't available. So I think that support system is really huge. Um if I hadn't had family just keeping the wash going and bringing food places and Sitting, sitting with me, you know, was, was helpful. Um, just quietly being there. Uh, my sister flew from North Carolina. She's 10 hours from me and we see each other once a year. And she flew over two or three times and spent each a week with me each time. Um, it, it, it matters. It means a lot. So, so anything you can do to support the, the cards coming in the mail, they, they do, they mean a lot. If you're long distance, don't think that that's not something that matters. Um, I was getting sometimes 30 and 40 a day and they, uh, they lasted for almost a year, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's that, that, that matters. If I'm the one diagnosed with cancer and other sudden disease, how can I lean on my God for help? What prayers would you pray or how do you deal with it and not lose faith in God? I think you have to have a, a firm, a firm trust and faith in God. And, and if you're shake, if your faith is shaking at all, then I think you definitely need to be reading the scriptures. I think the Psalms is a good place to start and mm -hmm. just start reading the Psalms over and over. Um, there are, my mind is going blank. Um, when I first got cancer, I thought, oh, I'm going to be home for a long time, so I'm going to go through this Bible study, those that wait on the Lord, um, and and read through that book. So I, I did that I did that for a little while. Um, I think when you're weak, the best thing you can do is pray. Is just even and don't don't feel like you have to offer. Uh, you know, theologian-like type prayers. Um, God, I need help. You know, for if if someone is struggling, just just go to God. Uh, I I never I never struggled with a lack of faith. Be, I, I just never did. Um, but and I've just lost my train of thought. Um, 
say your question again because this is one of those times where my mind is going. It's okay. I guess primarily how can I lean on God for help? Well, I've just gone completely blank and I had something that I really wanted to say. So it'll come, but you're seeing an example of what I'm talking about, that, that it, it's there and it, right. and it just leaves. Um, well, you were talking about prayers and you were talking about how you don't have to say this big, fancy anything. I know what so I was thinking. Yes. That okay. Like. Yes. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Because I... I do remember because the darkest time for me was after the lymph node surgery because that's when I was in pain uh, constantly. And I remember thinking, I don't have to worry, though, because I was like being held in the palm of God's hand. So he knows. I don't even have to tell him I'm hurting right now because he knows. Um, But do I get the right to tell him and the privilege to tell him and... Um, the, the blessing to know, yes. So, but there's, I don't know. I just felt like, um, the relationship is like, you're just surrounded by God. So he's there. He knows he understands. And the, the, just the gift of saying, God, I'm hurting is enough, you know? And, um, I, I never prayed to have it taken away because uh, I don't think I think that would have to be a miraculous <laughs> occurrence, you know, to take it away. But but um, to to just be thankful that God understands, you know, no matter what. And also, no matter what I was going through with the you know the the gamma eye procedure, which those of you who aren't familiar, they're screwing four screws into your crane and into your cranium. And then hooking on a, it's a painful process and you can't be put to sleep. But you know, I didn't have a crown of thorns shoved into my head. <laughs> and I'm sure there were more than four thorns that went into him. And that was six hours or more. What? Uh, I didn't face the nails on the cross. And anything that I went through, it, mm. it really pointed to me the crucifixion. And this is just an illness. He did that because of sin on us. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, anything that I went through and that I struggled with and, and, and misery, it just really pointed out the love and the pain that he went through to me. His was so much more. He so, chose it. Yeah. So it's like I'm thankful God understands and I don't have to say much. And I'm also so incredibly humbled that that he did that for me, that Christ did that for me, you know, Um and it was so much worse than I'm experiencing right now in this moment of time. So that, that helped me get through anything like that. Um, you have to be careful what you pray for, mm-hmm. um, because we, we have, we had two wayward children. We still have our oldest one, uh, 18 or 19 years now that is wayward. And I started praying a few years ago. Um, you go through a stage of prayers when you deal with, um, loved ones that have left the Lord from, you know, begging God to take care of them so they don't get hurt while they're away and wake them up and, but really just kind of protect them. And then you go through the stage of, um, I don't care what happens to them. God will pick up the pieces. Let, let them face their sin. We'll pick up the pieces on earth. Well, that wasn't waking them up and they both had been through difficulties in their life that should have woke them up. So then I started praying. Um, if it takes one of us getting seriously sick so that they get concerned about their parent, then let that happen. And God, don't give it to BJ because, <laughs> and I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me. I don't think God struck me with cancer. Okay. But, but I said, don't, don't let BJ get sick because he's too needed in the church. So I'll take it on. It's okay. And um, then I get cancer and BJ said, you have been praying what? So I'm not saying God did that, but I will tell you that, um, it did bring my daughter back. So you have to look at the blessings of no matter what you go through, find, find the light and the blessings in it because they're there, you know? So, yeah, as someone who suffers from depression and I think that 
finding the positivity, finding the blessings that come through it, those are very difficult things to do, especially in the hard um, down moments. Um, it's almost like my brain just shuts off the positive at all, and the only things I can think of are negative. Um, so it's really encouraging that you were able to go through all of that. And from someone who saw you almost every day, <laughs> it really is true. You were very positive through it all. The people around you weren't always positive. <laughs> we were worried. Well, like I, honestly, I do. I think the people that are watching you go through it, it's worse for them than the people that actually go through it. Yeah, you know? we were worried. And Tish almost had this attitude of, why are you all so worried about me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm fine. You know, and I've, BJ, and it's not new to him, but he tells an illustration. If you get a phone bill that is high, you all don't get phone bills anymore. Yeah. If you get an electric bill that's really high, you don't kick the mailman for delivering the mail. Mm -hmm. And I think too many people blame God for things that go wrong in their life, sicknesses or whatever. And it's not God's fault, you know. So don't blame God, turn to God for mm -hmm. it. And so it's just, um, it, it was, nobody wants to get get cancer or a life-altering, but, but I'll tell you, we've had several friends diagnosed with ALS. I would take what I went through much more than a diagnosis of ALS. You have to look at stuff as um, what what is a blessing and get through it. And whatever you're diagnosed with, if it, if it is something like ALS, then... Find the joy in that, you know, find, find the, the peace that you can live with, with your family and, and what you can get through because you can't change it. That's the thing. I think so many people spend too much time like in denial. And mm -hmm. to me, it's like, okay, it's not God's fault. Um, I may have caused this by my health or my eating or smoking or whatever you did. It's not God's fault, but you got it. So now fight. That's what you've got left. So fight and and get closer to God. Turn turn to his word, turn to God's people and and you get ready to fight because you don't have a choice. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all of that with us. And um just so people know, it's not easy because of the short-term memory, it's not easy to kind of be put on the spot and ask <laughs> <Yes>. questions. <laughs> um, I feel like I rambled a no, lot. No, not at all. Before we end, we want to do our um, Bible superlatives. We're going to find out um, who in the Bible is most likely to have more than four pets. Noah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he had a <laughs> way more than four. <laughs> That's so funny. I know. That would have been. Oh, but I got another lot. one. Oh, you got another one? I do. Oh, Daniel. No. Look at all the lions <laughs> he was with. <laughs> and they didn't eat and they were his pets. Okay, go. You're next. <laughs> See, wouldn't you have loved him? You would have loved that. You love yeah. the big cats. Mm -hmm. I would. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, man, you took the two good ones. <laughs> I'm going to pick one. I'm going to pick one. Okay, go, go, go. Before you get Jezebel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, though. The dogs ate her, you know? <laughs> yeah. They turned over. I mean, I'm not saying that they're good pets. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Maybe, like, the pets, her pets had the same vibe as she did. Mm -hmm. Evil. Yes, exactly. If you can't think of any, I got another one. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to say Adam. Because oh, that's he who I was going to say. Okay. I'm going to say Adam because he had all of the ones in the garden that he yes. had to name. Mm -hmm. Yes. And when you name a pet, they're yours for life, aren't they? I know. Once you name it, you get attached to it, obviously. right? He named all of them. So yeah. he obviously had a lot of them. Ones. <laughs> well, thank you Thank guys. you. Because we're moms. We're usually recording this late at night. <laughs> and... um. And I know you were at school today, like, and you're tired. So thank you for coming and doing mm -hmm. this. Um, thank you all to um, who listened. I hope that if you haven't 
heard um, the one we did with Miss Courtney that you'll go back and listen to that one as well. Um, these are beautiful Christian ladies who not only can we learn a lot from their example and what they've lived through, what they're going through, but it's just encouraging. Um, even if it's not anything that we're going to face, it's encouraging to know that we have Christian women who are strong like mm-hmm. they are. Oh, and one more thing. If you yeah. have any questions or comments, email us. And it's exactly what our podcast is called, When the Picture Isn't Perfect, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear questions, but we'd like to have some time to prepare for them so that we give you a good, scripturally accurate answer. So if you want to reach out to us, when the picture isn't perfect, uh, at gmail.com, right? Yes. If you think it could be of any help to anyone else, please like, share, and subscribe. Thanks for listening.